Listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast, where we explore traditional tabletop and live action role playing games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to our Patreons for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, Thin Bloods, grab a drink in your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you. Welcome to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. I am Mark, and we have a very special episode for you today. In February, we went to PAX East, where we were running all sorts of games like Vampire the Masquerade and Call of Cthulhu for hundreds of players. And in between all of that horrifying gaming, we actually ran a panel called Horror in Tabletop Gaming. My co-host Ian was joined by our good friend from Darker Days Radio, Mike, along with Chris and Nick from The Botch Pit. So for very talented game masters sitting together and discussing how to utilize horror in their tabletop games as a narrative tool. Near the end of this panel, we took some questions from the audience, so it might be a little hard to hear. Um, There wasn't really a a microphone being passed around, but it's not too bad, and um, I think there's a lot of really good insights in here. So hang out with us for a while, enjoy this panel. Sounds almost as if you are at the convention yourself. Um, we are regularly doing these types of panels um, in the future, so I want to make sure that all of them are recorded so you can catch them here on this podcast. So without further ado, I give you the PAX East panel, Horror and Tabletop Gaming with Gehenna Gaming, Darker Days Radio, and The Botch Pit. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello. All right, so I guess we're starting this. Um, welcome to Horror and Tabletop Gaming. Uh, thank you for being willing sacrifices. I am Ian Muller. I am the moderator for this panel, but I am also a speaker because, sadly, Mark has passed away. No, Mark has the flu and couldn't come <laughs> to PAX because I told him if he came, I was going to stab him because I don't want to get the flu. Um, Mark is... Yeah, Mark is my business partner. We run Gehenna Gaming. Uh, We are a game events company, do a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, We are running Call of Cthulhu and Vampire 5th Edition over in Tabletop area, so that's what we're doing here. Um, I would also like to introduce Mike. Mike is a good friend of mine. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Is it on? Is it? No. It is not on. All right. (laughs) You just got woken up. Let's uh, back up here a little bit. Hey, my name's Mike, and uh, I do a podcast called Darker Days Radio. We're kind of like an artist collective of horror tabletop RPG writers. Hi, I'm Nick Savizero, and I'm here with Christopher Dyer, and we're part of the Botch Pit, a YouTube channel dedicated to explaining games and and I absolutely was not expecting this many people to show up for this. So thank you, everybody. We really appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we obviously have the first sacrifice already done. Uh, Mark is very sad he couldn't make it, and I will be covering some of the uh, conversation topics he wanted to bring to the panel. So hopefully I uh, remember him well. <laughs> That said, um, so the thing thing we're really going to be talking about today is um, how to set tone in horror tabletop RPGs, how to maintain tension through an entire session, really deliver um, 
the type of horror experience that you want to deliver, whether it's terror, uh, pure horror, anxiety. There's different ways of doing it. We're going to do this through talking about aesthetics. Um, we're going to talk about setting, delivering moral quandaries to your players, pacing, uh, tabletop specifics, uh, talking about investigative horror, personal horror, body horror, things like that. Um, how to blend horror and comedy, which is done amazingly in film and not so well in tabletop gaming usually. Uh, it tends to change the tone significantly when people start laughing. Obviously, mechanics. And then we're going to talk about running horror games and systems you don't expect. You know, most people think of Dungeons and Dragons as a high fantasy fireballs and with mages, but as Curse of Strahd and other scenarios have shown us, you can run a very frightening game in Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, some of us are particularly good at it. So that said, I'm going to dive right in. Uh, at the end, we will have a little bit of time for questions, so if you have them, you can ask them, um, but we'll also all be around afterwards to chat with you. And um, all of us, except for Nick, because he's a loser, are running games it, with... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Called out immediately. <laughs> no, uh, we're all... These fine gentlemen are all running Call of Cthulhu and uh, Vampire with Gehenna Gaming, so you can find them over in the Gehenna Gaming area at the end as well. So like I said, aesthetics. There's a lot of different things you can say about aesthetics, and I'm going to let them talk about it, because I've already been talking a lot. All right, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll just take over here. I actually made the slide, so, uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of think about what's on the screen, but I'm sure they'll be able to provide some uh, additional insight. Um, but yeah, a really interesting thing uh, to note about when you're running a tabletop RPG is the fact that you can actually crib a lot of genre tropes. You know, if you're running like a, a fantasy sort of game and you want to have a kind of gothic uh, adventure going on, a great thing to do is just look at some old films and take those kind of um, notes, those uh, aspects that you really like, such as going through the dark uh, mansion with just your candelabra as an uh, uh, element of light and that sort of thing. Because despite the fact that uh, people want to have like, a lot of unique things, uh, it's also great to kind of hold on to a lot of um, uh, just like uh, <laughs> uh, notes that, uh, that people are very much used to. Um, so people are all gathered around to run like an RPG or something, and they actually like to see things they're familiar with uh, and those kind of, kind of tropes. Awesome. Uh, I'd like to touch a little bit upon one of the five senses that really means a lot to me. It's sound. Uh, personally, outside of tabletop role-playing, I am a musician, um, and I also work in a studio, and I've had the opportunity to do a lot of actual production. So I just want to speak a little bit in regards to that, because a lot of people, unless they incorporate sound with recordings while they play, or say if you're playing... Uh, with any type of backing tracks. It's how you can incorporate it, but how you verbally describe sound. It's a term in music that we call timbre. Now, of everyone here, could, could I just see a show of hands of how many people are musicians in the room? And that's really awesome to see because I feel like a lot of the people I know that do tabletop are highly influenced by music in some way. And when it comes to sound, the term timbre is defined as how the sound, wh what is made. Like instead of saying trumpet, it's harsh or cold. Those terminologies that you can use really help set a scene. So instead of, you know, the door creaks open, 
use some of that terminology to help further define your scene. It adds so much to it. Uh, personally, I find I'll just go right for the blunt method because that's how it works. I like describing in detail sight. Describing what you see is great. Really getting into the point where you're watching your players getting uncomfortable to the level of detail. As long as, you know, the whole making sure that everybody's okay with what you're going for. Just kind of, when it comes to sight, when you're describing it, watch your players' faces. And if you're seeing their, like, the, their, their eyes squint or their lips turn to the side, that's really powerful. And keep going with it up until the point where someone goes, ugh. And that's, that's kind of the sweet spot. But the most powerful use of sight is not using it at all. When you can make the illusion that they're going to see something and get ready to describe what it may look like if they saw it, and then ripping that away and not giving them the chance, and then maybe not even having them see it during that specific encounter, that sort of method, I like to... I love just pulling the rug out from people, and sight is the best way, along with sound, really, I guess, would be the two best ways to just, in conjunction, rip out their reality from them. Yeah, and a perfect example of that, Jaws. Everyone has seen Jaws. What is the scariest moment of Jaws? Not when you hear the sound, not when someone gets taken under. The scariest moment in Jaws is when you see the shark for the first time and you don't get that sonic uh, revelation that something's about to happen when they're on the boat. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. There's, I'm going to touch on another sense, actually, because we haven't talked about it. It's that smell in describing smells to people is often a way like I've gotten more visceral reactions and people like shivering in their chair by describing a smell wafting through an open doorway before they've seen heard or any other and the best way to do that is to think about what what a dead body smells like think about what rotting food smells like and don't say oh you smell rotting food but talk about like the decay and just kind of like the automatically makes your nose wrinkle and kind of a gag reflex that it is. The sweetness of it. Yes, that too. The coppery smell of of like the (laughs) old blood from a body as you step in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can't go wrong with that. I got a a follow-up question on this actually real quick. Uh, How does the panel feel about the gross-out? You're going to hear us talk about films, comparisons to tabletop role-playing. How do you feel about gross-out in your tabletop game? It depends on the game I'm running, really. Um, For me... I'll gross people out and call it Cthulhu every session. Nice. Vampire, something like Alien, things like that. If I'm running a game, I want to rely more on a setting dread in a different way. But something where you're expecting to see something horrible, yeah, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive as deep as I can into body horror. and just Good man. Be like, uh. <laughs> Approved. Yeah. I get brutalized by the guy to the left of me. Uh, every single time we play, he's actually the storyteller for the botch pit. Hi. So uh, when you said that, I instantly thought, when was the time where that hasn't happened? <laughs> you know what you signed up for, dude. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, I think what the last thing I would really touch on when you're talking about aesthetics, and feel free to add more, is that you can do a lot setting a tone for a game ahead of time by just simply describing what you want the players to feel like by describing what you would feel like in that situation. And that's a huge thing. Think about how it would affect you, unless you're a soulless corpse. But I think that the thing that I try to deliver most is what is going to scare me. 
So that and kind of empathic connection to the character, like literally in their shoes, mm-hmm. like you're feeling that. Exactly. And that's, I mean, for me, it's a high bar, but, so I, I try to tone it down a little bit for some people. But that, I think that's a really good way to open it, and then you can modulate from there. You can go up or down depending. Like, okay, that didn't have the effect I wanted it to. Let's, let's go a little harsher with it. Aesthetics covered. Moral quandaries. And this was something I think, Mike, you were really interested in kind of diving into. So I'm going to give it straight to you. All right, sure. Uh, so, I mean, we're kind of going over, like, basic elements of horror in a lot of ways. And the moral quandary is uh, it's just a cornerstone of all of that. And I feel, personally, that it's really great to explore in your, your tabletop role-playing game. Since you're in the shoes of other characters, um, going through and exploring an ethical conflict um, is, is just crucial in a lot of ways. Uh, so I've had, uh, this actually comes up a lot when I run also like cyberpunk games a lot. We talk a lot about social issues and the, the like, um, big fan of like Vampire, for example. So that's a great place to really just talk about, uh, the issues that are in our world, um, that maybe we, uh, if we're privileged, do not experience. Um, but we can explore those and be confronted with some of the, uh, some of the questions that other people have. Um, also, it can just be uh, more generally about morals. I was writing a, um, an adventure recently where the characters right off the bat basically have to choose who they're going to kill when they do some time traveling back to the past. Um, and everything is telling them in a lot of ways that they are supposed to kill these people. However, as it turns out, if they take a bold moral choice and don't commit murder or they ensure these people survive, they're actually ultimately rewarded for it. Yeah, for me, um, a game line or a series of game lines that we typically run all the time is uh, from World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness. And each line has sublines underneath it, like this one for vampires, one for werewolves, one for changelings. And every single time, each one of those lines tries to question what it's like to be human. And I feel as though when you really look at the entire line from another light, looking above it, what does that mean? You know, it's a very, like, high, like, thought process question. Um, But, yeah, no, it's just something that I constantly encounter all the time. So moral gaming, like, the moral quandaries in horror gaming is a little tricky, depending on what game line you're running and how you're doing it. Uh, If you give someone a chance to be moral in a role-playing game or immoral... Uh, nine times out of ten, they're going to rip a toddler's head off or something. Like, they don't care. P players are not in it for the moral by choice. Now, I had a game, for an example, where one player was playing a Geist character, and uh, he didn't know it yet. So I actually tricked another player into killing him. Like, it was definitely definitely a setup from the beginning. And I actually role-played out, like, the other character who got killed... He had always been trying to do the right thing, even though his character wouldn't. So I was trying to beat into his head that sometimes you don't have a choice. You're going to do the wrong thing because it's the only way out for your character. You just are. And at the end of all that, when he had finally given up hope and he had, you know, he, he, he got out and he thought he was all set. And that was when the other player trying to free him set off the trap and totally just impaled him through the chest with a, like a pressure door valve that just popped off right into his chest. Right through. So, 
the whole rest of that, the next three sessions, the person who killed him felt terrible about it. And the other person was frustrated because they were like, well, if I'd known that was going to be the situation, I would have tried to get out on my own. And that was the whole point. Sometimes the best way to use morals in your gaming is to take them away and not give them necessarily a good choice or a better choice. Sometimes you're going to be the bad guy because in real life, you're not always doing the right thing. And that's just how it is. You touched on unpacking personal horror, which is one of our bullet points here. And I think that World of Darkness does it really well because that's, that's what World of Darkness is about. It's about <laughs> personal horror, regardless of which line you're looking at. Um, Vampire in particular, I think, is the one that I think of when I'm thinking about trying to be in touch with your own humanity, trying to n- never having a good decision and always having to basically choose between the lesser of two evils, and sometimes you don't. And that's when it comes, and when is it okay to be evil? Sometimes you have players who are like, no, I'm going to be the bad guy. And I think people always argue in D&D, they're like, well, you know, you can't have a good player with bad players. And you can, but that's... <laughs> totally that, true. You can absolutely do that, and it's fantastic <laughs> if it's done correctly. I, I've played the evil character in a campaign of good characters, and it was amazing. And I can see the person who ran that game sitting in this room, so I'm not going to say more about it. Um, <laughs> in Vampire, you're encouraged to be... You are evil. Like, you are a soulless... Well, not necessarily, but... Mm, uh, you are a monster who feeds on humans to get your blood. And, you know, with the new edition of Vampire, they've added mechanics to make you feel bad oh, about Hunger that. Dice. I love the Hunger Dice so much. You, like, you feel bad about feeding on mortals, usually. So it's, when, when do I, what level of evil am I going to stoop to is an awesome decision to force a player to make. Um, and there's mechanics to do it in some games, and in other games you have, to, you have to trick them into it, like you said. Hey, man, you're running the game. You can put the, you can put the cheese anywhere you want in that maze. It's up to them how they get there. Exactly. And sometimes it's just through their friends. Sometimes they shoot through their friends, you know? So I think the most important thing that I wanted to talk about in this entire panel is how do you maintain the tension in a horror game? Because really, horror is about tension. It's about making people feel uncomfortable. Um, and you do that through pacing. Uh, and that's, ironically, the first bullet is, does pacing matter? Because everyone talks about, like, okay, well, you have to maintain the pacing to tell the story through a certain amount of time, especially running a convention game or something like that. But... Sometimes pacing doesn't matter, and you want to adjust the pacing to determine how awful you're making people feel, if that's your goal. Um, I will often, if I see that players are like, okay, yeah, this is creepy, I will start speeding up the pace as we go every single round, and like they're like, oh, I don't know how to deal with this because the zombie was coming through the window a minute ago, but now it's already in the room, and there's another zombie, and they've grabbed that guy, and that one's on fire, and the room's on fire, and I, what, when did all of this happen? Um, just completely decimating your own... That mic's on. Yo, man, you broke it, you bought it. <laughs> completely decimating your own, uh, your own sense of what the pacing should be is often a really good way to adjust mid-game and be like, okay, now this is creepy again. If you're losing it. Mike? Yeah, uh, I actually, I'm the reason why like the doesn't matter question is on there, because I never really thought about pacing too much uh, in my games. Uh, but not too long ago, I was playing a game, uh, playtesting something with Ian, and um, 
the pacing was way off. Essentially what was happening, instead of having like the gradual build up to the climax and then you know, the denouement, which you learned about in like uh, English class back in the day, instead it was just like slow scene, fast scene, slow scene, fast scene, slow scene, fast scene. And it really just messed us up in the, uh, getting us into the correct headspace to really like explore this world. So it's definitely something to think about. Um, and it's not really that difficult. You know, it really is just about, uh, I prefer just like the constant buildup of Dread. Um, and uh, yeah, Call of Cthulhu, for example, has some really good advice in that book uh, into how you can do that with like peeling away the onion and that kind of methodology. Yeah, for me, pacing matters incredibly. Um, something to consider, because we're talking about like, does it matter? But also, how can you achieve pacing? Um, I found that in a lot of the games that I've run, as well as participated in, some of the best ones are finite. So, for example, say if you had, you were going to meet for four sessions on this one particular story, you're able to map things out a little more clearer than if you were to leave it open-ended. If you left it open-ended, it definitely adds, like, you know, when is the big bag going to come, when is it going to come, but also that helps to achieve if the, the pacing, because if it just drops dead halfway through, your players are going to not even want to pay attention for what could be the build-up. But if you set the build-up to be, you know, equidistant, it, it definitely achieves a lot more. And there's been countless series that you've probably have seen on TV and everything where the first, like, two, three seasons were amazing and then just drops off the, the face of the earth. 24. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll say it. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely matters. So, again, just consider that. So the, the interesting part that, I'm, uh, that I haven't seen anybody mention yet is pacing, does it matter, all that sort of stuff. Sure. But what is the pace? It really depends on every game that you're going for. Um, so as far as pacing goes, one of the things that I look at is, is it moving a, cor a correct horror trajectory? If so, people are going to keep expecting the horror. If people are expecting horror, you can't surprise them with the horror. I feel like the trick to it, a lot of it is, and this is kind of why I had the horror, I think I was the one that mentioned the horror comedy to you. Mm -hmm. Some of the most effective games that I've ever run is when you can make people forget for a minute that you're playing a horror game. And out of nowhere, you just turn a corner. Like, you're just laughing. You're having a good time. You turn the corner, and things just... They go south real fast. And you get to look at the players, and the smiles and the chuckles they had are just gone for a moment, and they're just kind of looking, like, confused and vacant. That's when you know you nailed the pacing correct, because you got them right as they let their guard down. Uh... It's one of those things where if you get too excited about your plot and you're too excited to rush them into your horror, if you already know there's a skeleton down the hall, there's, you know, a bare bones example. Huh, skeleton, bare bones. <laughs> there are no refunds. <laughs> you paid for this. Uh, no, if, if you don't give them a chance to forget that it's horror, you're not going to scare them. It's like when you're watching a Friday the 13th movie. Are, are you surprised when Jason pops up and he's the killer? Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, when Freddy shows up and kills someone, are you surprised that Jason, you know, Freddy showed up and murdered someone? No, you knew what it was. But if that pacing is right and you get that sweet spot where they think like it's always, you know, turned into an, you know, it's always sunny in Philadelphia moment and they're like chuckling and suddenly a car crashes through a wall and someone gets battered against the wall, arms break, head cracks open, they fall to the ground, everybody starts crying and screaming and you just pull that on them out of nowhere. 
that's that, that's where I like to be. That, that's <laughs> I dig it. Uh, you didn't mention this one in your list of movies, and I'm going to bring it up because it's my favorite horror movie. No, I know it's coming. The movie that nails that is Alien. What's that? The movie that nails that is Alien. Every time. Yeah. You're like, okay, yeah, it's it's about an alien that kills people. How often do you see the alien in that Three movie? Three times? Four not times? Not very. It, it, alien is the perfect example of how to pace a story so that it is scary through 90% of the movie, but nothing really happens other than, like, no, like people die, and then... No one dies. The, the scariest alien movie anyway is Alien Resurrection. It's just for all that's, the wrong reasons. That's just because it's a bad movie. <laughs> Unless you really want to see Joss Whedon prototyping the Firefly cast. I'll take any Ron Perlman I can get. I will, I will absolutely <laughs> discuss what I just said afterward because, yes, Alien Resurrection is Firefly if you watch closely. All right. <laughs> so beyond pacing, beyond genre, beyond... All the other things we've talked about, there's different types of horror. Um, beyond, like you can talk about terror versus horror versus dread, but like there are different ways to scare people: investigative horror, personal horror, body horror, sci-fi horror. Um, often, you need you're encouraged to pick one of those and be like, okay, you're running a personal horror game, or you're running a. Oh, you don't need to see Bruce Campbell's face yet. <laughs> no, um, no, put it back. <laughs> put it back. <laughs> You don't have to. You can blend those. Like I have run Call of Cthulhu games that very quickly turn into exploring personal horror when that's not what the players expected, but they got so into their characters that that's what it became. Because at the end of the day, it's about the player and their interaction with what they're engaging with. Uh, and I know that all three of these gentlemen are fantastic at this because I listen to their podcasts and I talk to them a lot. <laughs> and you still invited us. <laughs> and, well, I mean, mistakes were made. Yeah, we have mistakes were made. <laughs> All right, sweet. Well, I can just talk about this from the uh, like general uh, historical standpoint. There's been a, uh, a kind of divide in horror role-playing games. Um, traditionally, when you look back at how they originated, it was alive with Call of Cthulhu, uh, which is itself primarily an investigative kind of game. Uh, in fact, you play as investigators, right? So it's going through, it's exploring the horror of the world around you. Uh, and then there was, of course, like a, a big break, uh, primarily in the early 90s, especially with like Vampire the Masquerade. Again, another game we're running here, um, where it became a lot more or was intended to be a lot more uh, exploring your own uh, horrors of a person or of your own morality or of your own decay in many ways. The loss of humanity. Indeed, indeed. So that's kind of what uh, we want to bring up here is that uh, when you look at different games, they're actually intended for different types of horror, right? Um, but that shouldn't limit you, of course. Uh, as Ian was bringing up, uh, there's a lot of ways to explore different elements, uh, bring in things like comedy horror and uh, body horror, uh, and it can easily shift from scene to scene. Um, but I think it's good to uh, discuss with your players beforehand and set expectations for essentially what you're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, because with this stark divide that we have, uh, if you set up doing an investigative horror game and someone really wanted to do a, a personal horror exploration, uh, they might be disappointed on occasion um, as the rest of the party is kind of going off and doing other things. However, if you can establish that and uh, uh, ensure that everyone's pretty much on the same page, you could, of course, bring in you know, certain spotlight scenes and the like. 
yeah, for myself, um, just to comment on it, I feel as though personal horror is the type of horror that connects your players to the game the most. Whereas the ones that they feel like their character becomes invested into something that affects them, it is one of those techniques that storytellers can use to kind of incite them to continue doing what they're doing. And it allows for way more interlocking connections throughout the story. Because that's really what a story is. It's just all characters interacting and connecting with one another. So I, I find it kind of funny that, you're, that there was a parallel you just drew between investigative and personal horror. Because I don't personally find them very different. I think A leads to B on this one. So investigative horror... Again, hence the point of an investigation is you don't know what's going on. And when you're investigating something that is completely unrelated to your character from one area, and next thing you know, you start to find out that those people that, you know, say you're just, you know, let's go with the trope here, you're a private eye. You know what I mean? And some lady's like, I think my husband is stepping out. Please, you know, take a look. And you start investigating her, and you start to find out that there's people following both of them. And now somehow you're being followed and you're connected into it for some reason. Like the same people that are following are now following you. You start to go and try to find out what's going on with them and say it leads back to your the town you came from or something like that. It doesn't matter how you get there. But the fact of the matter is it should always on some level, no matter what you're doing, come back and tie it to your character on some level or else, to be quite honest, what's the point? What's your character? What are you as a player getting out of it if your character's getting nothing? I don't want to be that guy, but when it comes to role playing, it needs to be kind of selfish on some level because that's what makes you want to keep playing. If it's not rewarding to you, why do you do it? So I, I just feel like the investigative, the investigative horror leads to the personal horror, and I feel like that is a crash course. It's inevitability, and it's just something you should kind of always aim for if you can play out the long game. You kind of answered this, but I want to pose it to the rest of you. So you would say that like personal horror is really what you strive for in any of the games that you run. Personal horror, horror is personal horror. Yeah. What about? Yeah, I, I agree. I uh, like moral quandaries. So yeah, definitely. Uh, I do enjoy it when it comes down to uh, player agency and the choices that they make, resulting in the horror itself. Yep, for sure. Mm-hmm. If you can't get them. You want to be the carrot. You don't want to be... The payoff isn't for you. You want to bait the player into getting what they want out of it. It's not your job necessarily to deliver it to them because if you're all sharing in that social experience together, they're going to reward themselves just by playing the game. I think that's a great tie-in to the next slide. Oh, sorry. It really is. (laughs) Where we get to look at Bruce Campbell's face again. Yeah. It's the best one, too. So, I... I'll... I want to end on this one, so I'm just going to pass this straight off. I have, I have a story I want to tell. Oh, okay. So, take I mean, it away. I don't have too much to say. It's okay to laugh in your horror game. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, personally, a lot of my uh, character inspiration, story inspiration, comes more so through the vein of comedy through the slapstick. Horror. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, we see here with the Evil Dead with Sam Raimi and uh, Bruce Campbell, but also not necessarily they're horror, but not what you would think is horror. Like a lot of Tim Burton stuff, like Nightmare Before Christmas. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Jack is like 11 
was he 11 feet tall? He steps so. over like buildings, and he's just like this really thin skeleton. That's terrifying. But in the scheme of you know Tim Burton's whimsical, you know Nightmare Before Christmas, like, ah, it's, it's not bad. Next, it's like, can you please stop skeleton shaming? No. <laughs> and then you have like Come Sally, who's like it's a you know, Frankenstein. But then you have Corpse Bride, Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is terrifying. Um, but also like think like Young Frankenstein with Gene Wilder. Um, and then also, again, the more whimsical, like, childlike stuff, like Adam's Family, or even Coraline. Coraline is up there for me. Um, and then, again, musicals, too. Think, think outside Cannibal. the box. Cannibal the Musical. What's up? Cannibal the Musical. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, the best example like of that. Rocky Horror Picture Show, Little Shop of Horrors, all of them. They're all inspiration. And, again, they aren't what you would think as horror specifically. It's not the first thing that comes to your mind. But they're terrifying. And use them. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some, like, kids' movies, there's terrifying scenes in them. Oh, uh, Witches. Do you remember the movie Witches? Yes. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> Even Charlie the Chalking Factory, when you're going through the tunnel, and he's like, ha, ha, I just almost killed dozens of kids. Here's a jingle. Like, okay, dude. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> have your sociopath yeah. party. Peter Pan is terrifying. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was watching this movie called Time Bandits, which is like a time travel movie. That's amazing. It's a great film. Great film. After about an hour and a half in... I realized that I had seen this film when I was three years old, and it had terrified me of going into the basement. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Gremlins when I was five, and I was like, oh, this yeah. is horrifying. And then I saw it like, when I was eight, and I was like, this is a comet. Why, why did I think this was scary two, three years ago? Yeah. <laughs> so is Die Hard, road. but that's not the debate right now, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Can I uh, just, I just want to add one more thing about comedy in gaming before we carry on. Because it's one of those things I hear that kind of makes me go crazy is when there's the whole character that's like comedy relief. I personally believe that there's no such thing as comedy relief. If anything, the comedy is the basis and the horror is what breaks it up and throws everything into into chaos. So whenever I see like comedy relief or you know that whole term when it comes to horror, like even I'm going to mention a terrible movie because it's a really good example. Of a terrible movie, uh, Resident Evil Two Apocalypse, with Mike Epps, and yeah, he killed it. I love Mike Epps. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> it didn't fit the tone. It didn't fit anything. Whereas, if you were to have a movie that's more comedy, again, like Little Shop of Horrors, let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah, the part where you see um, Steve Martin gas up and get ready to just he gets the pliers going, and he's you get. <laughs> <laughs> that is terrifying. Again, it's comedy, but the comedy is the basis, and the horror is what shatters it. And that's one of my most influential. Yeah. If there's funny. any one takeaway that I could give to anybody, it would be don't be afraid of the comedy. Don't be like, I want this to be dark and serious and mysterious. Yeah, okay, go for that. But just understand that you can plan for it all you want. If you're playing with good friends, it's sure as hell not going to stay that way. It's just not. No, <laughs> never. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, uh, and it, like there are horror games out there that are focused on comedy. All flesh must be eaten. All flesh must be eaten. They came from beneath the sea. The next one that they're doing in that line, like these are games that are made for you to be having fun and laughing at the table, but they're still scary games. Uh, the story I wanted to hey, look at that. Oh, that's bad. This, <laughs> well, okay, now we're on a time limit. Um, that's real horror. Gave your charger? Yeah, I do. Actually. All right, we're good. Uh, the story I want to tell is from the game I ran this morning, and yes, I see you in the audience. Uh, th- that game was hol- it turned into slapstick comedy, but it was a actually terrifying Call of Cthulhu game. Um, but the players had fun 
and were laughing and being silly and still playing a horror game, and it was really fun. No, 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 Ian. Horror games are not supposed to be fun. I know you're not allowed to laugh at horror. No. (laughs) I'm too tired to do the base thing. I'm sorry. That said, and that really comes down to mechanics. Like, good horror mechanics will keep a game scary, and you will still have fun, and you will still laugh at moments. But there will still be tension, and there will still be things that drive conflict, things like that. Dread is an amazing game, because everyone's played Jenga, and Jenga is silly and fun. You use Jenga instead of dice for a horror game, and you do not want to touch that tower. (laughs) That's a great idea. I'd never even thought of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I, like Dread is one of my favorite games for one shots. That's good psychological yeah. on this. That gives someone a breakdown at my table. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know, Mike. What do you think? I mean, you've run tons of Chronicles and World of Darkness, and yeah, especially with yeah. the changes they made over the years for the mechanics. Yeah. So uh, a, a term I used to use quite a bit was conflict-inducing mechanics, uh, and that's been something that's really grown uh, in the last probably fifteen years. Um, there used to be tons of uh, very uh, harsh mechanics for players, uh, things like the sanity system from Call of Cthulhu, or like the the, uh, the horror and fear mechanics that were used in Ravenloft for Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. But these days, uh, they really there's been a lot of growth in like story games for uh, mechanics that help uh, have, allow the players to have agency and decide where the story goes. And I think that's great because really you want mechanics that cause conflict. Uh, with the story, not punishing the players. Uh, a real issue that can come up uh, with some bad mechanics, I know we're trying to focus on the, the positive ones here, is that you get into a situation where players don't want to do anything in your horror setting because they know if they read that book, they're going to lose their sanity points uh, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> yeah, we have a few examples here. I know we can all talk about different mechanics and just wax lyrical, and we probably have plenty of time for that. So, um, I'm just happy that Hunger Dice are on there because there's no better psychological weapon against your vampire players than the Hunger Dice. It completely changed how Vampire runs for me. I've been playing Vampire since 1999. Yep. Yeah, same. So, Chris, you mean, do you want to just explain the uh, Vampire Dice, Hunger Dice real quick? I'll give a super quick breakdown. Uh, It used to be with Vampire the Masquerade that you had blood points. And you get to a point where players were just like, well, I mean, I can't do anything without the blood points, and I could frenzy. So I go eat someone, and I feed. All right, how much, you know, how much vitae you want to get? Blood you, points. You fill up the gas. Yeah, it's, it's what it was. It was legit, like, they turned into, like, sip and gulp. That's all it was. Yep. And, <laughs> and now, if you get hungry on a scale of one to five, you get these mean little dice that are added into your dice pool. And if you succeed or fail using those dice... Specifically, like those hunger dice. Oh man, it goes beautifully wrong. Like you may just like try to grab someone by the arm, and if you're too hungry and you just fail out the wrong way, you'll just legit go to grab their arm and just rip it off. You're like, oh, sorry, dude, my bad. You know, it's like that can happen. Like it, it can happen. It's not common per se. Oh, well, in my games is common, but it's not common typically with the system. It's. It, I mean, it depends on who you're running with. It's pretty common in my games. <laughs> okay. Just like, I don't want to encourage people to do bodily mutilation and club people with it, but if you do it, uh, the YouTube channel, the Bosch Pit, please go and share the stories, because I love reading about that. Uh, systems, I mean, I'll be honest with you, depending on the game you're playing, too, systems, they can hammer the point home, but you never want to rely on them. Yeah. Like, they're, they're a good accessory. You know what I mean? Like the, the Mechanics are very important in a horror game, but they're not the quiz essential part, in my opinion. 
I have a game I like to play internally whenever I'm running something, which is to see how long I can go before I make someone roll a die. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. Rel- we're not a, we, we don't rely on the dice. No. Although when it comes time to you know, I mean we're shy away from the dice, but we definitely don't rely on it either. Yeah, and also, you know, going along with that, a lot of the stuff that we run uh, for our stuff is some of it's homebrewed. You know, to oh, yeah. be honest, like it's mm-hmm. you don't, don't always it, what works for you. Yes, exactly. That that's the word I was looking for. Uh, make and again, just make sure all your players are okay with it. Because I'll tell you this: if you tell your players that you know this is what you're going to do, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, like, okay, yeah, we'll do it. You know, tailor it to your needs. We're trying the Jenga thing, though. Yeah, we oh, are absolutely. absolutely trying the Jenga thing. Now that I heard that, I can't unhear it. That's a fantastic idea. Awesome. So this is really our last point that we wanted to touch on, and that's like. You can make any game scary. You can make any game a horror game. If you really yep. love Dungeons & Dragons, more power to you. If you really love Shadowrun, I'm sorry. Um, Aww. <laughs> Aww. Oh, is that because of the new edition? Is that what this is, Ian? Are you just shooting shots across the bow? Is that what this is? Yes. Uh, good <laughs> no, for I you, man. Call them out. I like making fun of Shadowrun players because they buy all the dice, D6s in the world, but I actually love Shadowrun. Um, but you can make any game scary. It's all about the story you're telling, and you can use the mechanic against them. You can homebrew things. You mm-hmm. can see how long you can go without running, making them actually even roll a die. It's about how you run your game, not the system you're using. If all you know is D&D, but you want to run horror games, run horror D&D, and then come talk to me because I need more people who can run horror D&D games for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think for me... I like seeing what I can do with different systems because systems are fun to play with. I run horror systems because I like those systems. I think the basic role-playing system that Call of Cthulhu uses is the best role-playing game system invented because you can teach it to someone in five seconds because it's roll two dice and it's a percentage. If you roll under your percentage, hey, look, you succeeded. And there's nuances, but don't rely on the system play the game you want to play. I don't know. I kind of disagree with a lot of this. Um, <laughs> based on what Chris was saying, what Ian's saying, uh, I think that I truly believe that mechanics really do matter. Um, and when you look at D&D, the mechanics in a lot of ways are working against you. There's a lot of uh, uh, hard, crunchy math in it. There's a lot of really complex powers. And the way that uh, previously they've tried to uh, bring in horror elements, again, was like pretty punishing to players. Things like you have to make a, a, a madness check because you saw an illithid and, oh, you go crazy for a little while. Or um, third edition had just, just like a buildup of taint points. So if you had high taint points, then you just didn't want to do anything that interacted with uh, like the, the scarier portions of the setting. Um, <clears throat> Now, we've talked about a lot of uh, different mechanics here, uh, and I would really just recommend uh, trying to crib a lot of those to try try to get more story-inducing mechanics, conflict-inducing mechanics into your games. Um, A really good one, actually, is uh, the uh, Chronicles of Darkness uh, system with its, like, um, uh, condition cards and its tilts, because what those do is they give you experience points for, like, resolving them and stuff, which is just a great way to get players interacting with the story and uh, get them thinking less about uh, how they're going to beat the bad guy and more how they're going to interact with the environment around them. Uh, So that's definitely a a good one to check out. I'm kind of awful with this because I homebrew everything and I make everyone mad at the table. Uh, Everything. Especially my storyteller, uh, who's right next to me. Um, But personally, like... 
again, I always feel, you know, going back to what we've been talking about this entire time, like horror, the mechanics do matter. I, I will say that. But it's more of a connection. I feel like that's always the biggest thing with horror. So I'm going to flip this around, and I'm going to take the contrarian side to Mike here. Okay, let's do it. We're going to do this. Okay. All right. So here's how I feel about mechanics and horror. Mm. I feel like it depends on the players you have and how they'll respond to that specific mechanic. So for conditions and tilts, generally speaking, when I put it on a player, they'll, a lot of times they'll just feel like they're penalized. It's like when you're playing like Fallout or Skyrim and you have too much gear. And you're just encumbered. You know what I mean? They're, they're, yeah. they're not scared. They're just like, oh, damn it, I guess I'm crazy for an hour. I guess i got to keep chewing on someone else's fingernails. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's... The mechanics definitely matter, 100%. Mm-hmm. But, again, I, I just can't personally... And again, I mean, we're talking... You know, if you're comparing Dungeons & Dragons versus Chronicles or Call of Cthulhu, again, I feel like the mechanics are different. If you're playing a game like Call of Cthulhu, the mechanics are... You're dealing with a game where the biggest danger isn't getting murdered. Because if I'm correct on Call of Cthulhu, I'm still learning it. But pretty much, aren't you just like a, a, a flesh bag that if you get shot, death death comes to you pretty quick if you get shot or stabbed at Call of Cthulhu. Yep. Right? Okay. That guy over there. So if, <laughs> this dude's like, yeah, I'm a lot. Like a lot. Uh, so if you've got that, then you've got D&D where you get like 10 chances to save yourself if you're going to die. And even if you die... They can find someone that can bring you back if it's within enough turns. So, again, death isn't necessarily a great fear. Then you have Chronicles, which is a little in the middle. I feel like it's very narrative-based. And if you know a certain condition or tilt will be a useful tool to that player. Because if you have a player that isn't really into that part, maybe they're just there to hang out. Maybe they're not as into it as another player. If you give the, the same condition to two different players, you're going to get a insurmountable difference out of them. Oh, it's very loosey-goosey. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where if they feel like they're not being punished by the conditioner tilt, it's great. But if you have a mechanic where it's just going to slow down the gameplay for them, they're like, oh, I forgot about that. I have to take off two more. You know? know? Then it wouldn't work so well. But again, it depends on the players in the game, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, There's different systems that do it better than others. Uh, One thing... GURPS. GURPS is the best, right? Look me in the eyes, Ian. Look at me. Look at me. I broke him. I'm going to move that tombstone over to his name next. Um, (laughs) It's been good, everybody. Bye. You should always... I mean, I shouldn't say always, because you can't really do it at a convention game as well. Running a game with people you know is always easier than running a game for strangers, because you can look at your friend and say, I know what gets under your skin. Yeah. Um, I ran a game... Uh, I'll, I'll preface this, and I'll. I ran a game with my wife was one of the players, and uh, she the scene from Alien where the chestburster comes out terrifies her, and I was like, "Cool, I know exactly what I'm going to do." <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, because yeah. I knew it, I knew it wouldn't upset her, and she would think it was cool, but I knew she'd be like, "Oh God, that's terrifying." So it, you know, you you tailoring something to the player is exactly, I think, the best way to do horror. Backlog everything. If you're with a friend that you know something bothers them, like I have a certain friend that plays in the game that has kind of made it clear that Gregorian chanting gets to him. (laughs) And he's only mentioned it twice in our, I think, 12-year friendship. But if he thinks I'm not just sitting on that, and and, and (laughs) I don't remember a lot of things. I'll remember that. (laughs) I don't remember much, but I remember what scares people. (laughs) And I remember what scares specific people. 
No, I think that's that, and that ties it right back into all horror is personal horror. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it, it, you have to get into people's heads to run a horror game. So. That concludes our panel. We will open it up to questions. But first, I want to say you can find all of us floating around through the rest of the weekend uh, in the RPG HQ. Gehenna Gaming has a table. Mike's already been over there for a little while, and he'll be running games with us. Chris will be over there for a little while and running games with us, and Nick will be around as well. I think I'm there like all weekend running Vampire. I think I'm the the Vampire slave. You are the I'm the ghoul. You are. (laughs) You're not not the worst one. I have someone who literally doesn't get breaks all weekend, but he asks for it. It's weird. (laughs) It's their problem. So, yeah, uh, if you want to learn more about what Gehenna Gaming does, you can find us at www.gehennagaming.com. We do a lot, so I'm not going to go into it right now, but I can talk to you afterwards if you're interested. Botch Pit. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Nerds. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> no, uh, you can find www.thebotchpit.com and then, of course, Darker Days Radio. Mike, wonderful yep. gentleman, and uh, his partners, which are spread across the globe. International. Uh, uh, I need to point something out that uh, Darker Days Radio is definitely one of the biggest reasons that we got into this. <laughs> so awesome. I need to Glad point that out. That. Thank you for doing that. I've known you and Chris since Shadow and Essence days. So, yeah, you don't even know who I am, but I know you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk some Bring horror, buddy. Horror. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, darker-days.org. Yep. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, we will open it up to questions for the next 10 minutes. Uh, one, one guy over there tried to – somebody tried to interject about action horror. I think someone over there, they were, like, screaming it for a minute. So, <laughs> so yeah, if anyone has questions, feel free. Yes. <laughs> There's a yeah. mic in the center. So if you want to jump over to the mic, you can... All right, I, will let you, I will let you go first because you're already standing. Yes. So we use a consent form. We ask for your consent to scare you. Uh, The consent form covers anything that might terrify someone uh, across the board in any way, shape, or form. And it's a red light, yellow light, green light system. So if someone red lights something, we don't use it uh, because we don't want to traumatize them. But if they yellow light it, we will absolutely try to include it in a tasteful way. And then if they green light it, we're like, cool, I'm just going to go overboard with this. Um, And then you tailor it to the group as well. And uh, for me, it's really about going, okay... I'm going to start introducing topics, and I'm going to see who shivers a little bit, who kind of squirms in their seat, and then I'm going to drive those ones home a little bit more as we keep going. So, I mean, as far as it goes, typically I'll let people start playing, and based on the actions and the decisions that they make, I'll typically be able to suss out what will mess with them a little bit. There's certain things that I just never put in my games. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily really want to get into it, but there are certain things that... I don't care who you are or what you do, especially if you're playing with strangers. There's certain things you don't put in your game. It's not necessary. And certain things are just crude and offensive, but not scary. And it's just, you know, trying to be edgy and trying to do that. That's not horror. So when it comes to playing with strangers, it's definitely a matter with me of letting them, watching how they play and basing off of their decisions. I'm not really too worried about offending them because the stuff I'll put in typically, it's not good. I mean, there might be some blood or some gore or whatever, but there won't be anything... No, nothing really. More no, yeah. no, no. It's unnecessary. Yeah. I'll torture my friend in the game, though. I had him oh, tortured once. He deserved it. 
He deserved it. I okay. drop all my filters when I'm gaming with friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, apparently Let's do that it, mic's not on. I apologize. Yell. You should definitely check out the system Dread. It's awesome. Um, Mike, what do you think? You've been doing this for a while. Uh, I just try to get people to focus on me and uh, just <laughs> deal with the noise. I yeah. mean, that's all you can really do. You jingle car keys yeah. over your head constantly. <laughs> yeah. just like, over here. <laughs> yeah. Over here. Um, the one thing that helps us, uh, so like at, at PAX East, you, a lot of our tables are curtained off, which is super helpful. Yeah. Um, at PAX Unplugged, for example, it's not. You're in a room. There's a ton of other people running games. So it's pants optional versus pants mandatory sort of situation? <laughs> yeah, more or less. <laughs> all right, just check. Um, for me, it's... Uh, the big thing I do is uh, the thing we talked about earlier is relying on the senses. Um, start engaging their different senses. Uh, the sense of smell is very, very heavily tied to memory. If you can trigger memories for someone, you've got them hooked for the next two, three hours. Like that, now they're going to be paying attention to your game. Um, sight, smell, sound, taste actually can be very helpful, uh, especially in a game like Vampire where you're drinking blood. Um, using the senses to really engage with people is super super helpful. Thank I also you talk a lot, so it helps. Just don't taste the storyteller without consent. That's why he has the form. Consent <laughs> form. <laughs> awesome. Hi, yeah, so I had a question about inducing conflict um, like with the story itself. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you try to avoid um, some mechanics that punish players with really engaging with the story, but how do you induce conflict, if you have any specific like uh, uh, examples on mechanics you would use? to say, okay, we want you to read the book, but we don't want to drive your character so crazy or just incapacitate them to the point where, well, you're not involved with the story anymore, right? So what specifically do you do to cause that conflict but not, you know, sideline them? Uh, a big thing I tell people before we start a game, especially if I'm, like, running Vampire 5th Edition, is that losing should be fun. And that's really, if you set that kind of expectation, Smart. I think that really allows mm. people to engage, especially with, like, the, uh, the hunger dice. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up with that mechanic is that it doesn't come up very often, and when it does happen, people get pretty excited. It's so beautiful. Yeah. 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 They, it's the best they part of the game. They want something bad to happen. Failure? Yeah. Sweet. What, what, what horrible thing did I do to someone? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so I guess to follow up, then, like you're, you're avoiding directly damaging the character, but you're putting them in a bad spot. In this, in like, nonetheless, they're in a bad yeah. way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Ed. Again, again, don't be afraid of the mechanic. Like, we're not saying stay away from them. Yeah. It's more a matter of sometimes you don't need to rely on it. It's one of those things where if you can get to a story part, and you know, say you go to a mechanic, and you're trying to ask them to fix your car so you can go wherever you're going to go, you shouldn't necessarily make them roll, you know, wits and auto or drive just to get them to explain that their car isn't working. It's more a matter of cutting out the BS rolling and focusing on the, the, the mechanics that matter to that conflict resolution. Yeah. Because sometimes the dice just got to roll. And, if, you know, when it comes down to it, don't be afraid of it. Just don't rely on it. Mm -hmm. uh, Call of Cthulhu is a good s system for that because you have a spot-hidden skill. If you want them to find something, don't make them roll spot-hidden to find it. There you go. Just make them find it. <laughs> like, don't punish your players for Bingo. doing things that you want them to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this lovely lady's holding up a five-minute card. Thank you. <laughs> She's, yep. 
Hi there. Uh, I'd like to thank you specifically for bringing up Dread because that's the system I actually write for and run most of my one-shots for. It's awesome. fantastic. And, yeah, when you're literally a pull away from watching someone die in front of you, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but I'm running into a problem with a lot of my Dread games I'm running right now. I'm really good at pacing out some of the more action-focused scenes where I can get someone to do 12, 15 pulls within a group on a tower really easily. But when I pull that gauge back real hard or even gently to move into the more horror-focused aspects of the system, I find that either I'm not GMing very well those sessions or, or those sections of the game, or my players are not necessarily ready to shift into that headspace that easily. So what tips do you have for making that transition from making pulls or making checks very aggressively to going into a more downshifted section where it's actually focusing more in on the actual horror sections of the campaign. Um, I, I've never I would dread. circle back to the example I gave of Alien. Um, think about how Alien is paced and you are tense through that. The minute the first horrifying scene happens, you are on the edge of your seat through the rest of the movie. Like there, it never stops, even when she's doing mundane things, um, because she could die at any moment. The alien could be in the air duct directly above her. It could be right around the corner. You don't know when it's going to pop up. Um, one thing we didn't touch on was the difference between terror, horror, and dread. Really, um, so for m- note that one, <laughs> not the game. Uh, terror is uh, defined as knowing something's about to happen. Horror is how you feel after it's happened. Hmm. And dread is the anxiety of something could happen. The tower could fall at any time. Uh, I don't know exactly how to do that for what you're asking, but I think um, focusing on making them feel like you might make them pull a block at any moment would be the way to do it. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Hi. Um, in a system like D&D, all the characters are just this laundry list of abilities, and it feels to me like a lot of those abilities just absolutely negate a lot of the classic things uh, from a horror, like, oh, no, it's dark. So what we all see in the dark? Um, oh, he gives you a terrible disease. Oops, land hands, it's gone. Um, is there any way to bring that sort of thing back into the game well, without invalidating the players who chose to take those abilities? I have something for this, but it goes a little bit against the end of your question. Mm-hmm. My favorite way to do that is, what if their powers start failing? Railroad it. And they don't know when <laughs> yeah. it's going to work and when it's not. That, that's how they solved the issue with the Ravenloft campaign setting back in 2nd edition, is a lot of the powers just don't work. Okay. And you actually don't tell them that they don't work. Like, if they don't read the rule book, they'll think like, oh, there's no evil people around when I do no alignments. There actually are, but you just never told them that that's an actual rule. Uh, that's kind of the cheesy way of doing it, though. It is. Um, it can be. Yeah, so you do what you got to do. <laughs> I would, you know, a thing I would do, actually, uh, is have the powers start failing. You don't explain why, and you have, like, a role involved. So you keep yeah. that kind of, like, tension as, like, is my power actually going to work? Uh, is the fireball actually going to go off? Do that sort of thing and uh, just kind of build up tension in that manner. And then you can have a story element as explaining why that is. Or maybe sometimes have it be too effective. 
we, that, and that's something that uh, Vampire does well with the Hunger Dice. If you have a messy critical, yeah. you would succeed phenomenally, but it does not go the way you wanted it to. You throw that fireball, and suddenly it's four times bigger than you expected, and it's napalm. It's the best way to do it. Go big or go home. Yeah. Thanks very I mean, much. Yeah. Uh, I think we have time for one more. One more. Uh, where do you guys like to ride the spectrum between uh, survive and you might get away and Ghostbusters and you're blowing up the state of Marshmallow Man? As far as player empowerment, like he was talking about a little bit with the abilities that different players have, where do you guys like to ride that spectrum in your games? So, I mean, if you're asking me, my, 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 if like, I'm running a Chronicle, it could be left to right depending on the session. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's been entire times where there's been two sessions of like zero to like little bit of action. And then you hit that third one and the big bad that you thought was still going to be at the end game of your Chronicle just kind of is there. You know what I mean? And then it hits the wall, everything's go bad, and it's a good time. But I, I don't feel like... If you try too hard to divide what you're doing, the players are never going to do what you expect. They're just not. You cannot control the level. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you, you just can't. It's, it's just you can't. You can't control what the players are going to do. If they're going to decide that their players are going all action, if they're bringing their handguns out with them and they're going to decide, you know what, I know this is a really quiet research-based game. Let's go rob a 7-Eleven. Like, <laughs> it's going to go action. Don't divide it. If they want to get shot, that's their own stupid fault. Yep. Oh, they came to party. They brought their hats. They can take the party favors. I, I also think going along with that, um, depending on you know if they're experienced players or beginner players, if you are, again, it has to do with the whole pacing question, is like you know how long of a time frame you have. It's like, say, like a one-shot with brand-new people. Let them have fun. That's the biggest thing of all this. Just let them have fun. Uh, the example you gave was like you might survive this versus Ghostbusters. I hate. Uh, like we have to end. All right, we are done. Just give a heads up, Bill. You could die. Yeah. Like if you do this, you, I mean, just so you know, you're you're doing this. <laughs> like I'm just reacting to you. That's good. One. Yeah. <laughs> I can elaborate more on that if you can stick around, but we do have to wrap. Thank you all so much. Thank for you so out. much, Thank everybody. You. This is amazing. Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Your attention has been noted. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com, on Twitter at GehennaGaming, Twitch.tv slash GehennaGaming, and Patreon.com slash GehennaGaming. And remember, where there is no imagination, there is no horror. <laughs>